Well, good morning and happy new year. My name is Hayden Potcutter, and I'm the men's ministry pastor here at GBC. And if you're wondering for what, what that means for who's preaching on Sunday, um, if this were the presidential line of succession, I'm like the Secretary of Agriculture, like, <laughs> the Secretary of Labor. I don't, I don't really know the order. I know it's pretty low. <laughs> so thanks for being here. Uh, it means a lot. <laughs> uh, that's good. Okay, uh, we're going to be in Mark 5. <laughs> we're going to be in Mark 5, um, looking at verses 1 through 20 today. And while you're turning there, I feel like it's important, because it's not said enough from the pulpit, that um, I went to Texas A&M University. And felt good. Um, I don't know, we hear a lot about UT and all those things, but um, I went to Texas A&M, and I just celebrated a, a pretty important anniversary while I was at A&M. Um, Ten years ago, this past fall, I, I was riding my bike, which I loved riding my bike to class. Um, it was a, specifically, it was a fixed gear bike, or a fixie, um, because I thought that made me relevant and, and cool. Um, which basically means, if you're, if you're unfamiliar with the bike business, um, it basically means that uh, the pedals move the wheels, and so there were no other gears, there was one gear, and so if you stop pedaling, then the wheels stop turning. Um, that's important, because it's <laughs> cool, obviously. Um, so I was riding my bicycle to Lane's Chicken Fingers, which I think is the best chicken in maybe the world, and, and while I was riding there, I was riding appropriately on the right side of the road, and I, I heard this truck accelerating behind me pretty quickly. And I was riding appropriately on the right side of the road, so I felt safe about what I was doing, and I didn't feel like I was doing anything you know, wrong. Um, but I heard it accelerate um, pretty quickly behind me, and sort of as it got really close, I heard the deceleration, and then I heard an expletive yelled at me. Uh, one that would be inappropriate to say from the pulpit, so I won't, but um, it was yelled at me, and just as I kind of turned, clearly assuming my attention was needed, um, I was hit in the side of the face by Route 66 Dr. Pepper. I think the size of the drink is important there as well. Um, obviously, a lot of words come to mind. Uh, shock, mortified, um, covered in Dr. Pepper. And so in the shock and mortification, I stopped pedaling, which brings me back to the first point, that it was a fix your bike. And so I flew over the handlebars because the bike stopped moving, and um, laid on the ground on the side of the road, covered in Dr. Pepper, <laughs> as this truck drove by, and, and didn't stop. Like, there was no follow-up. I didn't recognize the truck. I didn't know the person. They just kept going. And so I just sat there. And the thing about A&M, <laughs> if you're unaware, some of our core, core values are loyalty and respect and selfless service, just, just to name a few. Um, and so the perfect way for this story to end is that someone stops and gets out of the car and helps me up and, and cleans me off. Um, that's not how this story ended. The story ended with me just sitting there. <laughs> and cars going by and no one stopping. And uh, somehow that hurt more than the Route 66 <laughs> being thrown in my face. Um, but I sat there and eventually I just kind of got up on my own and walked my bike and just carried on with my day. And... Um, the interesting thing there is, no one stopped. That was, that was really sad. That's not who we are as Aggies. <laughs> it just isn't. Um, but I don't know which would be worse, someone, st someone not stopping, which is what happened, or um, maybe someone stopping, starting to help, and then stopping and moving away, and giving up and saying, uh, this is too disgusting, or um, see you later. Someone else can, can deal with it. 
And I'm curious for you, what, what would you think, which would be worse uh, between those two? Of someone, no one stopping, everyone passing by, or someone stopping and then leaving? Um, the passage today is um, about a man who I think feels a similar level, a far greater level of dejection, of hurt, of sadness. I won't trivialize it to say that it's even similar to, to my experience, um, but it is a similar experience in that he felt a lot of emotions, a lot of things, a lot of things happened to him, um, and people gave up on him and moved on. So we're going to jump into Mark 5, verses 1 through 20, and um, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 to start. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. The questions you'd be asking before we start is, who are they, where are they coming from, and where have they gone towards? And we get from the last chapter of Mark, that they is his disciples, Jesus and his disciples. They're coming from Capernaum. They're crossing the Sea of Galilee to a town outside of the Decapolis, um, basically a big metropolitan area of ten cities. Jesus is coming from um, appointing his disciples and bringing them towards him. He's also coming from where business is booming in regards to ministry. He's coming from a place where people are tearing holes in ceilings to lower people in to get to his feet because people are flowing out of the house that he's teaching in. He's coming from a place where literally he's teaching by a sea and says, somebody get me a boat, otherwise the crowds are going to crush me. People are moving towards him and listening in droves. And it seems like if you're starting a ministry, a movement, that this is where you'd want to be. It seems like it'd be going really well. And you kind of get this first principle of how Jesus did ministry, which is what this passage is going to tell us of the things that Jesus cared, cared about in ministry, which I think we should care about, and the people he moved towards, and just that he moves towards people. He moves towards people. He, even the subtext there would be that the limelight is very fickle, and comfort, comfort in ministry is fleeting, but he moves towards people. The place to stay and be comfortable would be to stay in Capernaum and keep teaching there, because people are listening. Instead, he's crossing a sea, and he's immediately met by someone among the tombs. And the idea of demoniacs, demon possession, is probably foreign to a lot of us. And maybe we don't know what to do with that in this passage and how it applies to us. But there's plenty of characteristics of this man that he's going to be introduced to that I think we can learn from. I think we can apply it in our day-to-day. We know he lives among the tombs, among the dead, that he's been cast out there to a graveyard, I mean, what more way for a town to say you're dead to us than to place him among the graveyard? It says he's been no longer bound, so he had been bound, he'd been chained up, people had given up on him. He's now unfixable, he's damaged, he's physically pained, he's internally wrecked, he's persistently crying out. I read this with my, uh, not this, I read from a storybook Bible with my oldest daughter Lucy yesterday, just because I was telling her what I was going to be talking about today. And in that version, they said that he was, the man was scared and scary, which I thought was a really 
neat way of looking at that in kind of a simple way, that he was scared, think about the things he was feeling, but he was also scary to those around him. Lonely, forgotten, different, has a family, has friends, cast out to a graveyard. Where are they now? Not around him. That's the person that Jesus is moving towards, leaving what's comfortable, leaving the limelight, what could be, and moving towards someone like that, hurting people. That's what Jesus did. He moved towards people, people who are hurting. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way, God is near to lowliness. He loves the lost, the neglected, the unseemly. And that's what Christians can be marked by today, to be, uh, to be marked by nearness to those people, to the lost, the unseemly. That, I feel like that really encapsulates what this man must have been feeling. But it requires intentional steps to get there. Like you're not just going to probably give attention to people like in your day-to-day. You're going to be too busy. There's not enough margin in your schedule. You have to be taking intentional steps to look for them. Maybe better stated would be that it takes intention to give attention. Sounds really cheesy to say that out loud. But I actually think the, the principle is true, that intention will precede attention. For the sake of relevance, this is the Grinch, the story of the Grinch. He moves from stealing Christmas to saving Christmas because little Cindy Lou Who took an intentional step to move towards him, and it changed him. Who are you moving towards? Do you know the people you're moving towards? Can you define those people? Maybe that's the first step is, do you even know the people that you should be moving towards, that you can be moving towards? GBC has plenty of ministry partners that moves towards um, these kind of demographics of people that would be in the hurting sort of group subculture of homeless ministries with Open Door Mission, of teen moms with Houston Pregnancy Center, of refugees moving here from other countries with Houston Welcomes Refugees. Those are just ministry partners, but maybe even to refine that a little more, who in your day-to-day right around you can be moving towards? Can you identify them? And maybe that's that person in your office that no one else likes, maybe you don't even like, everyone's moving away from. Could be that new neighbor in your neighborhood that moved here, doesn't know anyone, feels alone, doesn't have connections. That could be that guy in your small group that just isn't connecting with everyone yet, but really close to you. Who can you make intentional steps to move towards? If you're in school or in your office as well, it could be nerds, which I feel like I can say because I'm I'm kind of a self-proclaimed nerd. And this point actually means a lot to me. Um, When I was in high school, when I was 15 years old, I was taken to a Young Life club. And if you're unfamiliar with Young Life, it's a nonprofit high school outreach ministry. And usually at Young Life clubs, there's a lot of games and singing, secular songs and things like that. And so I was taken to it, and I hated it. And I never wanted to go back. <laughs> I was like, this is not my crowd. I felt lonely. I felt insecure. I felt like it wasn't the place where I was going to meet friends and connect. And I just felt like, honestly, if I wasn't there, no one would notice. And it just wasn't my place. And I didn't want to go back. And there's a point in a lot of Young Life clubs where they'll play a song and they'll say, hey, throw your arms around a neighbor and we're going to sway to this song. And so that moment happened and Free Fallen played and they said those words, throw your hand around a neighbor and sway. And it was a, it was, it was a devastating moment for me when I, when I thought, no one's going to want to sway with me. These aren't my people. These, uh, they, don't, they don't care that I'm here. And that was this like crippling moment of what do I do, like kind of backing away. 
And the moment changed when these two varsity football players grabbed me, pulled me in, and I was standing there swaying to free falling by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers in the armpits of two offensive linemen. <laughs> Five foot four, and loving every second of it, and feeling I was a part of something for the first time. And my trajectory changed after that because of these two seniors in high school that looked behind them and saw this little guy <laughs> that looked out of place and pulled him in and said, you're with us, and invited me into the collective. Who are you going to move towards? Because that's what that did. That, was, that took intentional effort by two guys to look behind and pull me in. But who are you going to move towards? That's just the background that we get of the man among the graveyard, possessed by demons, night and day crying out. So now Jesus is face to face with him. Let's look at what the interaction is going to look like. We're going to read verses 6 through 15. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. I love the tension Mark builds with the dialogue here. Which, if you studied Mark in our small groups last year, you know that's not really his MO. He's kind of a bullet point, action-oriented author of his gospel. But we see a dialogue here that I think is really built in to show the extent of what this man was facing and the extent of e evil that was in him, maybe even more to amplify how much he was wrestling internally and how pained he was. The dialogue says that Jesus asked his name and he says, "Our name is, our, my name is Legion, for we are many. And if Legion is unfamiliar to you, it would be very familiar to those who are listening. Um, it would have been a term that would mean about 3,000 to 6,000, like no specific number, Roman soldiers. So it would have a term under an area of Roman domination that would invoke strength and oppression and power. That's amplified by the fact that Jesus sends this legion into pigs, a herd of 2,000 pigs, which I love a detail that's included there of 2,000 pigs, that's going to make them run mad and destroy themselves in a sea. Now, I've actually never seen a herd of 2,000 pigs. That was almost my first thought when I was reading this, is I don't know what a herd of 2,000 pigs looks like. I, I know they exist. I've seen a herd of pigs. But that feels like a lot. And that's double the size of this room of people. And so we see just from this dialogue the extent of evil that is inside this man, of the hurt he has to be feeling. And we actually see juxtapose two missions, sort of side by side. We see the mission of Satan to seek, kill, and destroy, like it says in John 10, 10. And we see the mission of Jesus. He had told his disciples before, follow me, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And look at this catch that's brought up. Look at this man that has been redeemed. And look how it describes him now, sitting clothed in his right mind, sitting calmed 
We knew he wasn't. He was physically pained and tormented, clothed, dignified again. Even more is kind of added to it that he was unclothed before and in his right mind, restored to what he was hoping to always be, what he was before, restored back to it. But we get from this in how Jesus does ministry. He moves towards people, and he doesn't approach it with behavior modification strategy. And that's what has been done before. Like, the people have tried that. They've tried physically restraining him. They've tried doing everything they can, and it's just not working. So they cast him out, and they shoot him towards the graveyard. But we see from Jesus here that that's not what he's about. He's about soul transformation. He doesn't put behavior modification first. That, that's what follows. We see that's what follows. The end in mind is sitting, closed in his right mind. But that's not what he approaches first. He doesn't, the first thing we do when they're face-to-face is that he's not trying to restrain him. He's not trying to shackle him like he had before. But he's going to, he's going to pursue specifically where the root issue is. And I think the question we can be asking then is as we're moving towards people, are we moving towards people with our principal mindset being behavior modification strategy? Or are we moving towards people with the gospel? Are we moving towards people so they would have an encounter with Jesus? Are we just trying to fix them up on the outside? Are we saying, you know, we can just fix this addiction that they're struggling with, or if we can just fix that they're, they're cussing, or let's fix all these peripheral things, and that's what fixing them is. Or are we moving towards people with the gospel? The gospel that transforms. Transforms from the inside out. It does have behavior modification implications, but that that only succeeds the gospel transformation first. How are we moving towards people? Because the town's proven that behavior modification just doesn't work. And then maybe on, on a different level, maybe what we need to be asking is who... Or what have we decided that the gospel can't mend? Who externally, who have we decided, like, they're too far gone? That the, the gospel can't actually get to them. They can't be changed. They can't be transformed. Because we see that a man with a legion of demons is under the lordship of Christ, and he can do that. So who have we decided that he can't do that? We've decided sort of on God's behalf, like, oh, that, that can't be done. And then maybe the other is, what in us have we decided that the gospel can't mend? Because the same gospel that saves us is the same gospel that sanctifies us, that moves us forward. What is that addiction that we're struggling with, that sin struggle? As you, this is that time of year where we, we start making resolutions and, and growth goals. And you're thinking back in the past year and you're thinking of the things um, that never mended, that you're still struggling with, that is still causing hurt and devastation, destruction in your life, and maybe we've decided that, that can't be healed. And this text would say otherwise, that if we really believe that Jesus is Lord of all things, then there's nothing that's going to be outside the scope of what he can renew and redeem. It starts by Jesus moving forward with soul transformation as his prerogative, behavior modification that would follow, but it would only follow. So he moves towards, he addresses a soul issue. We see a man sitting clothed in his right mind. Sort of the follow-up from this should be then, what is his role going to be in ministry? Like, we, we see that he has been transformed, and now what's going to be next for him? So now we're going to jump in and read verse 16 through the end of verse 20. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. 
As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. We're given two sort of unexpected interactions here. We care about where, where the, what's going to be next for the man and what his role in ministry is going to be. But before we get there, it's interesting to see the role of the townspeople in this and the interaction he has with them. And I think verse 16 and 17 may be one of the more tragic thought progressions we see in Scripture, where we're coming from seeing a transformed man that they all knew, were aware of, like this is the man possessed by demons. Like they, they even said that. They called him the demon-possessed man. They, they knew about him. And they see him transformed, and then they sort of turn and they look at this destruction of pigs, of what they've been told about. And with these two things in mind, they decide that there's a cost-benefit ratio, and apparently the cost of, two, of pigs, of 2,000 pigs, was too high for the soul of a man. And I think that is so tragic to see that they care more about an economic success, if that's what it is, or they care more about comfort, and, and Jesus is unknown to them, and that's uncomfortable. But whatever it is, they've decided that with those two things in mind, Jesus has to go. And they beg him to leave. That leads into the man's reaction and the interaction he's going to have with Jesus after he's been redeemed. And we see in that that begging happens for the third time. And it's interesting. The first begging was that the demons were begging Jesus that they wouldn't send that he wouldn't send them out of the country, and then said they'd send them into pigs, and he allows that to happen. And then the, the people are saying, we beg you to leave. We, we don't want you in this country. Uncomfortable, whatever it is, we don't want you here. We're, we're afraid. And he's allowing that, and he's getting in a boat to leave. And then here's a man begging, eager, excited. This is, this is the candidate for ministry, for like him following Jesus and being one of his disciples. That, that would make sense. And it says he's begging just to be with him, which is very reminiscent to how Jesus invited his disciples just before this in Mark, where he said he, the first thing he did was invite them to be with him, to spend time with him, to follow him, to learn from him. And he's checking the box of all the right things. It seems to be the one you'd want with you. And instead, Jesus' reaction isn't to allow that, but it's to give him some marching orders instead. He says instead to go to your community, go to the Decapolis, tell them what the Lord has done for you, and emphasize his mercy. And isn't that fascinating that he, he actually redefines his purpose? And that's what Jesus does. That's, that's, kind of, that's kind of what we're gearing towards, that Jesus moved towards people. He transformed souls. There's implications, outward implications, behavior modification that results from that. And then he gives them new identity and a redefined purpose. He says, instead of you just being the demon-obsessed man that everyone knows you as, you're going to be my ambassador, my representative. You're going to tell your story. You're going to be a storyteller. And the man goes and does it. We actually see this all the time in, in movies and in books and everything. We, Harry Potter, a wiry, orphaned, untrained, despised little boy, is told by Hagrid, a half-giant, that he's going to be the most powerful wizard. And then Luke Skywalker, a farm boy, is told that he's going to be a powerful Jedi. And Frodo, a little hobbit, 
In the comfort of the Shire, it's told he's going to be the ring bearer that's going to save Middle Earth. There's plenty of sports analogies out there too, I'm sure. <laughs> that's not... Or kayaking or something, I don't know, but that's not really my thing. <laughs> so I'm going to stick to what I know. <laughs> you can tell me afterwards how to apply that. <laughs> but we see that everywhere, where people are told of, of identities and a redefined purpose. He goes from purposeless to with great purpose, to go and tell a story, to go be his representative. Jesus does it with his disciples. He looks at Peter and says, Peter, you're a rock. Peter's flaky at best, but you're a rock. He brings fishermen and tax collectors to be his disciples to learn from him to start his church. He does it to us. He says, you're going you're gonna to go and make disciples of all nations. And really, this is, this is what discipleship is, right? That it is telling people of their identity, reminding them of their identity and of their purpose. So maybe the question is, how are you doing with discipleship? How are you doing inviting that to others, telling others, reminding them of their identity and, and who's in your life that's reminding you of your identity? Maybe when you have forgotten it. Who's reminding you of your great purpose to go and make disciples? How are we doing with that? Jesus moves towards people. He addresses heart issues, heart transformation, and then he empowers them to go with their new identity and with their new purpose. This may feel like a hard turn from Christmas. I mean, like just last week we were talking about a, a sweet and swallowed baby in a manger surrounded by livestock. And then now we're talking about a graveyard. And I actually think that it's the right turn from Christmas. I think it actually retroactively can amplify the joy of Christmas, the, the meaning of Christmas. I think that's amplified more when we're reminded of what that baby was going to be on mission to do, that he was going to rescue lost souls. And it's not just the demoniac story, right? It's our story too. The story of being shackled to sin, lonely, rejected, Jesus crossing a threshold, a much greater threshold, not a sea of Galilee, but cro crossing a threshold from the limelight of glory, the comfort of glory, to enter into the mess and chaos of a sin-filled world, to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with evil, a much greater evil, death itself, to not just be misunderstood and asked to leave, but to be mounted on a cross and to die for our sins, to be resurrected, to give us new identity and new purpose to live into. And maybe we just want to be with him, and that's our desire. Is like, Jesus, we just want to be with you in your presence. And maybe you feel that tension of why, why can't I just be in your presence? Where instead he gives us a greater joy that may not feel like a greater joy, but a joy of participation in going and making disciples of all nations. It's not just the demoniac story. It's, it's our story, too. It's the bigger picture of the gospel, and we see it sort of in a, in a microcosm in this text. How are we doing moving towards people? How, in 2023, are we going to move towards others? How are we going to tell them that it's, it's not just the demoniac story, but it's their story, too? Who are you going to pursue and tell them that this is their story? Who are you going to build identity into and remind them of their purpose? What if us Christians were marked by that? 
What if that's what we're about? What if on the outside looking in, the world sees that, and everyone they're moving away from, we're moving towards? We're telling him it's because we're on a mission, the mission that Jesus modeled for us. Let's do that together in 2023. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to be reminded when we forget of the identity that you've called us to as sons and daughters of a most high king, as ambassadors of Christ, as ministers of reconciliation. Thank you that you invite us into participation. Thank you that you saw us when the world doesn't. Thank you, Lord, that you place us with great purpose, with a great mission, and that you entrust us to take your gospel. I pray we would do that this year. I pray that we as a church would be marked by our movement toward others. And I pray, God, for, for all of us that we would also be reminded that you are a God that informs us of our sin and transforms us from the inside out, that that is your gospel, and that we would believe that you're capable of transforming us and you've called us to greater purpose. Lord, we love you. I'm asking your son's name. Amen.